Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and this week's episode is very special. We are very proud to be sponsored by Delmont Laboratories and joined by Dr. William Oldenhoff for a conversation about staphylococcal SPP infections. Welcome, Dr. Oldenhoff. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Now, you are out in, again, at Medicine Veterinary Specialist out in Wisconsin, and I understand you graduated from the University of Wisconsin as well. Is that correct? That is. That is. I am a graduate of both their undergrad program, their veterinary program, and also I did my residency there too. I love it. And tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you ended up in dermatology and, you know, this area in general. Sure, sure. So when I was in veterinary school, I did not think I was going to specialize, actually. Um, after veterinary school, I went into small animal general practice, and I really found that the dermatology cases spoke to me, that I, I just felt like my kind of method of thinking uh, really lent itself to dermatology. And so I kept in touch with the dermatologist at Wisconsin and eventually went back for residency there. Outstanding. And tell me, because I love to know, are you one of those individuals who always knew you wanted to be a veterinarian or did it come on later <laughs> in life? <laughs> no, I, I absolutely did not always want to be a veterinarian. I, When I was an undergrad, I thought that I was going to get a PhD in genetics and eventually just be a researcher. And I eventually did some actual research and realized that sort of benchtop research wasn't for me. And my mom was a practice manager at a veterinary clinic. And so I'd been around vets for a long time and just kind of hung out with them more and realized that that was what I actually wanted to do. And that didn't really happen until junior year of college. All right. And then like, when did your interest in dermatology come around? Was that immediate for you or were you out in the field for a while when you realized, you know, this is, this is actually really interesting and kind of fun to conquer? Yeah, it was it was when I was in general practice. Um, I was in general practice for two years before going back to specialize. And it was really within the first few months of being in general practice that I realized that I love dermatology. Well, and we appreciate that you love it because for some of us, it can be a frustrating area. There's such like reoccurrence for so many of our patients. That's and sometimes right. it's really hard to get a finger on what it is. When we have these clients who are like, I've got to come back in another two weeks and another two yep. weeks. And yep. it can be a frustrating area. So I think sometimes we're all really grateful to be like, hey, how about a specialist? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Derm cases can be really frustrating. And, you know, especially when you're when you're in general practice and you have these 15 minute appointments and you're double booked, you just don't have the time to really discuss all the ins and the outs of the case with the client. So it's, it's it can be a challenge. And that's, you know, that's one advantage I have as a dermatologist. I have one hour for my new appointments and half an hour for my rechecks. So I can really hammer everything down with the owner so that they understand why we're doing what we're doing. It's a huge advantage for sure. And I think kind of to your point about the fact that we have very limited time in our appointments, you know, we chose a topic today of staphylococcus infections in dogs because what we find is this is actually really common. And I think sometimes when we have these really common occurrences, we maybe don't take them I don't want to say like as serious as we need to, but I think we tend to breeze over it with the client and just say, oh, this is what it is. And we throw this at it. And we're not always really getting to the root of the problem, but it's, I mean, it's common, right? We're seeing it all the time. It's, it's extraordinarily common. And it's common because staph organisms are on every dog and every cat. You know, this is part of the normal flora of, of our, of our pets. And so 
there, there's this list of things that can go wrong, and it's a list of about thousands of different things that can go wrong with an animal, either on their skin or even internally, that can just cause enough abnormalities that the staph overgrow on the skin. So yeah, super common. And that's kind of where we get into a problem, right? Like we are not in an issue until we get into overgrowth. And that's an area we are are definitely going to have to really explain to our clients and talk to them about it. When we think about the fact that there are so many, you know, different strains, you know, what are the most common strains that we're seeing and how do they manifest in, in our patient? Because they think that makes a difference in how we treat and how we approach, but we may not always be thinking about it. That's right. That's right. So by far, the most common strain that we're seeing in our small animal patients would be staph pseudintermedius. And there are a few other strains that we can see as well. So we can see staph schleiferi. Uh, we can see other kind of coagulase negative strains of staph. And we can sometimes see staph aureus. That's less of a problem in dogs. We can certainly see it in dogs sometimes, but staph aureus tends to be more commonly isolated from, from cats that have staph infection. And so the, the thing that we see for the most part, on dogs at least, we see a very classic characteristic rash. We see papules, pustules, epidermal collarettes, and also see deep infections like veronculosis, pododermatitis, various other deep pyodermas, and we can see otitis too. You know, staph infections can certainly cause problems in the ears, and so we can get, you know, otitis caused by these staph. And we can see a lot of this in cats too. Uh, we certainly can see staph otitis in cats. We don't typically see the kind of classic rash of papules, pustules, and cholerets on cats, but they can certainly cause superficial infections on cats. And we can see a lot of them scaling because their skin is just much more delicate. And so between these different strains, do they tend to manifest differently? And like, how important is it really for us in the clinic to drill down what strain we're dealing with, or can we just look at them under an umbrella of staph? For the most part, when we're treating the organism, we can just kind of look at it under this umbrella of staph. Staph, pseudomidius, schleifri, aureus, they all kind of produce similar infections in dogs and cats. The only difference with how we approach that would be the way that we handle it from a zoonotic perspective, the way we would be concerned about protecting ourselves from from those organisms. I mean, it's a great point. And like, I think we are regularly need to be reminded about PPE in the clinic and, and That's right. thinking about it ahead of time, even with our tiny puppies, you know, we don't want to put gloves on, we want to smooch those faces. <laughs> That's right. Is, That's right? right. Yep. But yep. we absolutely need to be protecting ourselves on a regular basis. And kind of speaking about those smoochable puppies, I, <laughs> I'm having puppy cravings right now, I can tell. Um, you know, I think about puppy pyoderma. Like if you if you say to me, staff, I just picture a cute little puppy belly with all yep. those little pastules and honestly like how low-key we are about that you know we're it's we could it's benign right we're just like oh little puppies you know pop pyoderma um we may not even use the word staphylococcus with our clients and I think it's easy for us to get really comfortable with that. That's right. That's right. So so when are there some times that these are, are problematic? You know, are they more chronic? And when do we need to change how we're talking to our clients about it? Sure. Well, first, just on the topic of the puppy pyoderma, that, that is one form of staph infection in, in our patients that we can kind of afford to be a bit less concerned about because there are many young dogs that will develop skin infection for no real trigger. And it's probably just related to the fact that their skin and their immune system are not fully matured. So, so when a puppy presents with a staph infection, that's a pretty straightforward one where you just treat the infection and you don't necessarily expect 
an ongoing problem. But, but of course, the, the challenge comes in when we have middle-aged juvenile to geriatric animals who develop these staph infections because for these guys, there's almost always some primary trigger for it. So you have to approach it differently because for those animals, just treating the infection isn't enough because the infection is almost a symptom of the primary disease. The infection's there for some other reason. So treating the infection is important, but it's even more important to assess why it's there in the first place and thus how you can prevent it from coming back. Yeah, and these can become really chronic, especially in our geriatric patients. And I say that from experience with my own 13-year-old dog who she she got a staph infection in her skin and it was really hard to clear it up for her. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're just older and, they're, and their little systems are, um, you know, working harder <laughs> as it is. And I was really grateful to my veterinarian for, you know, the, the time and energy he put into it. But I think it's something that we could maybe get in front of with these better conversations. And so to your point, puppies, maybe we don't have to be super concerned about how should we be talking to our clients about it when we do have these more high risk patients to really convey the seriousness? Sure. Well, the first thing that I always tell clients is that these organisms, the staph bacteria, they're part of the normal flora. So mother nature puts it there because clients always want to know, well, how did, how did my dog pick this up? Or how did my cat pick this up? And the answer is, well, your dog picked it up or your cat picked it up from its mother when it was born. It was colonized basically right at the time of, of birth. So this isn't something that was picked up from anywhere. It's something the dog's always had on it. And so something has to go wrong, so to speak, for it to cause infection. And I think when you explain it in that way to clients, they do understand that treating the infection is important, but it's important to understand what went wrong that allowed the infection to take hold. And it's and, and that's pretty intuitive that if you don't figure out the actual primary problem, the, infa- the, the infection is going to just keep coming back. And I, and I think that to that point exactly, I, I start to like my mind goes toward those specific breeds. Like we know the ones with the wrinkles and, and like just the setup for these infections. Who am I not thinking about? Who else is the ones that we really need to be thinking about more chronic infection related to not just maybe their age, but their breed and sure. predispositions. Sure, sure. So you're absolutely right that a lot of the dogs that have these excessive skin folds uh, are predisposed to getting infections on their skin. And that's for more just mechanical reasons because these skin folds trap moisture. So that's like the bulldogs, Sharpays, any of the brachycephalic breeds. Those are the kind of classic dogs that we see with that. With regard to other breeds. So we see in German Shepherds, we see uh, this condition called German Shepherd pyoderma, which is this deep pyoderma uh, caused by an immune deficiency that is genetically uh, determined in, in German Shepherds. So it seems like it's probably like a lymphocyte or IgA um, deficiency that we see in these guys. When, and is that lifelong? Does that show up in puppies or do we start to see that later in life with those guys? So even though these animals are most likely born with this deficiency, we often don't see it until like middle age. And then once it shows up, it is for the most part an ongoing problem that really requires aggressive treatment to prevent. Is there, so I, it's funny because in the beginning you mentioned your interest in genetics. And so like, are there genetic markers that are indicated for these guys? Can we test them um, early to find out if this is something that we could get in front of at a younger age? That's a very good question. Um, Unfortunately, it's not 
it's not so simple as that. Um, we don't know exactly what genes are involved in the development of German Shepherd pyoderma. We, we know that there are abnormalities in terms of like IgA levels and T lymphocyte levels, but we don't know exactly what it is that triggers that. So, you know, genetics, it can be so complicated because sometimes you can have these very simple traits where, you know, there's one gene that leads to a certain disease, but oftentimes it's multifactorial and it's just this complex interaction of genes and environment. And it's probably something like that with German shepherds. So where do you get a conclusive diagnosis when it comes to them specifically? Does it come down to biopsy and actually looking at the lymphocytes or is it kind of more of a rule out? It's it's really more of a clinical diagnosis. We, you know, when German shepherd presents with kind of multifocal deep skin infection. Uh, certainly you can do a biopsy to, and, and should do a biopsy to, to make sure that it is just infection and not something more insidious. But if you biopsy and you just see kind of evidence of infection and it's German Shepherd, then you've got your diagnosis. You know, it's German Shepherd pyoderma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess, so in this case, I guess is, makes me think about the resistance factor, right? Because if we have these more chronic cases in, in German Shepherd pyoderma or these dogs that are presenting and are having kind of these consistent cases reoccurring, and even when they're not, let's be honest, clients are now even so aware of antimicrobial resistance that they're asking us about it. So can you speak a little bit to that point? How much do we really need to worry about it? We, we do definitely need to be worried about it because we are absolutely seeing a lot more resistance amongst our um, staph organisms. And methicillin-resistant staph pseudontimedius has actually become a pretty common pathogen in, in animals. And this is relatively new, and it really just mirrors the increased prevalence of MRSA in the human patient population. It used to be that a clinician just could just pick an antibiotic and you'd be reasonably assured of success. But unfortunately, this is no longer the case. It is reasonable to empirically choose uh, an antibiotic, first-line antibiotic at first. But, you know, if an animal has recurrent infections or if the treatment for the pyoderma didn't resolve the infection, you really need to be doing a culture to look for whether resistance is present. And we're seeing more of this resistance because you know, we exerted selection pressure to select for these resistant strains. Historically, veterinarians and, and physicians as well, we've just overused antibiotics. And bacteria are not stupid. They know how to develop resistance mechanisms to protect themselves. And when we're just giving antibiotics over and over, that really just encourages resistance to, to develop and then spread throughout the population. That's, you know, so for us, how often should we be going ahead and doing cultures and sensitivity? Do we, uh, you know, what's the best way for us to approach and to not contribute, I guess, to, to the resistance? Yeah, so culture is definitely an underused tool. My kind of rule of thumb is if an animal has had antibiotics more than twice in the last year, regardless of whether the antibiotics worked or not, I will I will do a culture. And if, if an animal has a staph infection that has not responded to treatment, then that should automatically flag that dog for culture because you don't want to just pick a different antibiotic because you don't know what's going to work at that point. And you don't want to just take a sort of best guess approach. You want to pick something that you know will actually work. Right. So what about the opportunity to culture in clinic? I know that for some practices, they are, um, you know, doing this in the clinic. And what is, what is your feeling on that? Or is this something we should always be utilizing an external laboratory for? 
So I would absolutely recommend that the cultures be sent off to an external laboratory. Culture can be challenging to do in hospital because there are all these different breakpoints that are needed to be used for determining whether an isolate is susceptible or resistant. And it's important that the appropriate breakpoints be used, meaning it's important for our animals that breakpoints based upon dogs and cats be used rather than breakpoints based upon humans, because something that is susceptible using one breakpoint may not in reality be susceptible, it may actually be a resistant organism. So this is something, again, don't cut corners here, send it off to a microbiology lab and be confident with, with those results. This podcast is brought to you by Delmont Laboratories, makers of Staph Age Lysate. SPL is the number one staph biologic for the treatment of recurrent canine pyoderma. Leading the fight against antibiotic resistance, make SPL the foundation of your treatment plan for effective, long-term control of staph skin infection. Okay, so I love data. It's my favorite thing. So dazzle me with the data. How much are these staph strains being studied? And do we have any reference data to source to know what we might, might want to reach for when it comes to treatment of these kind of more reoccurring staph infections? Sure. So there is a lot of research being done on staph infections in, in dogs and cats. <laughs> to kind of briefly summarize all of this because there are a lot of consensus statements that are out there for for treatment but basically you know the the broad consens consensus is that if an animal has staph infection if it is possible topical therapy is always the best therapy and of course that's not possible for every patient because maybe an infection is too deep for topical therapy to be to work or maybe the owner is incapable of applying topicals like chlorhexidine shampoo and mousse every day which is what you need to do so if it is possible topical therapy is always the best thing to do if a systemic antibiotic is necessary, then generally we recommend that you pick a cephalosporin. So cephalexin is a, is a really good choice. And after that, if an animal has infection and it's not responding to that beta-lactam antibiotic, that would be the time that a culture would be indicated. And when we get the culture results, I think it's important to view those results not just as a menu at which you can just kind of pick an antibiotic, but it's important to have a sort of order of preference in terms of the antibiotics. And we pick that by, you know, how narrow spectrum the antibiotic is. More narrow spectrum against staph is better than more broad spectrum. Uh, and we also choose based upon risk of like adverse side effects. So the general consensus would be after the beta-lactam antibiotics, clindamycin would be a good choice. And then after that, it really just varies by the animal. Um, certainly everybody agrees that fluoroquinolones are not first-line therapy and they really should be limited to cases in which susceptibility testing has ruled out other options. So this order of preference has, has some variability on, on a case-by-case -case basis. And I would say that there's not a clear consensus in terms of what order one should pick, but the kind of broad categories are topical therapy is always best, then beta-lactams, then clindamycin, then TMS, trimethoprim sulfur or fluoroquinolone or chloramphenicol. But 
the fluoroquinolones should really just be reserved for these more resistant cases. So, and then, you know, when we know that we're at risk for something being a little bit more chronic in nature, um, you know, either our geriatric patients or, you know, these German shepherds we talked about, you know, what are your suggestions there? Yeah. So, you know, first thing is if an animal has a primary disease that is predisposing them, them to the infection, whether that be allergy or something like hypothyroidism, you know, treating that disease will always be helpful in terms of preventing relapse. And then beyond that, you know, routine topical therapy is really important. So I will usually have people bathe with a two to 4% chlorhexidine shampoo. Um, I usually start with weekly and I can always increase the frequency or add in a chlorhexidine spray or mousse if I need to. So that adherence to topical therapy is absolutely critical. And, in, in, you know, I'm, I'm fi- I find that owners are pretty open to that because they do understand that resistance is an issue. And then this is also a good place to use staphage lysate. So staphage lysate is a, it's, it's a biologic product that we use as an immune booster against staph bacteria. It's given by injections, given by the owners. And I find that there are many animals out there that have what we call idiopathic recurrent pyoderma, so recurrent skin infections where there's no discernible primary cause, and they will often do very well with staphage lysate uh, to to prevent the infections. So it's you know it's I think it's always helpful to have some additional go-tos, especially when we worry about resistance, but also I think maybe like a little bit more tactile, you know, where we can, the client feels like they're doing something maybe a little bit more um, mm-hmm. hands-on-y. And, and I think we have a lot of clients out there who are kind of getting, you know, more and more away from different alternative, you know, looking more at alternative therapies. So it brings me to my brief, keep it brief segment, which we never do. So there's very <laughs> little pressure to be brief. But, you know, for these clients who are more concerned about antimicrobial resistance or for the ones that want these like non-medical type of options, what are your go-tos and your suggestions when we're trying to work with clients who want maybe that less pill down the throat means? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, because clients are becoming more aware of resistance, I do find that it's not as difficult to convince owners to be bathing their animal on a regular basis as it used to be. And certainly the most effective treatment for prevention, you know, for topical therapy would be a chlorhexidine product. And, and I do think that although that is a quote unquote medicine or, you know, drug, it's, it's not the same as giving an animal a pill. And most clients are very amenable to bathing their dog, you know, once or twice a week with this chlorhexidine product, if it means that that's going to avoid the need for recurrent courses of of oral antibiotics. So I absolutely think that, you know, topical therapy with a chlorhexidine product is good. There are other products that are out there. Unfortunately, they're not quite as effective, um, like benzoyl peroxide, ethyl lactate, chloroxanol. Those tend to not be quite as effective. And then you know, of course, there are always going to be the clients that want something that is super, super natural, like a like a tea tree shampoo or something like that. And, you know, I explained to a lot of owners that some of these products can actually, actually cause contact reactions. And so, and, and natural does not always mean better. So there are some of these natural products, they have essential oils that actually can be damaging to, to keratinocytes. So really, you know, it's important to stick with 
the products that we know will work that are effective and well tolerated. And that's really chlorhexidine is the best product for that. Yeah, I'm picturing dogs across America covered in manuka honey and just thinking. Yeah, like- <laughs> yeah, right. Like, right. Honey. Yeah, it's antimicrobial. Maybe honey has a role in like wound management. But but yeah, please, please don't slather your dog in, in manuka honey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the ants outside are saying, please do. But that's yeah. just it is, is it that you get these really kind of trendy options and people start to want to ask about them. And one thing I've had, you know, luck when I talk with my clients with is when they start saying, I'm worried about the side effects of the medications, I start to talk about side effects of not using the medication, right? So like having that flip side of that conversation, what are the side effects of not going ahead and doing X, Y, or Z? Because it, it, they start to think of them as not being... No treatment has no side effects, but we actually can, you know, cause damage by not. So sometimes I kind of use their language um, and just kind of broaden the the way of looking at it. And yeah, honey's not the answer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And and you know, this is something where I will I will tailor my message to the client, and in some cases, I will not really be afraid to get a bit graphic. And and what that means is. You know, if an owner is resistant to doing the topical therapy that I recommend, I explain that, well, you know, if you're not, if you're not doing the topical therapy, then this infection will keep coming back. And the more antibiotics we use, the more resistant it'll become. And we will get to a point that the organism is no longer susceptible to any oral antibiotic. And at that point, a very simple infection can become fatal potentially if, if it goes into the wrong spot and we have no antibiotic options available to treat it. That's right. So in closing, are there any other resources, any other places, sites you like to send people for more information? Sure. So one thing that I like for the general public, for my clients a lot is uh, Worms and Germs. Um, Wormsandgerms.com is a blog that's set up by um, Dr. Weiss at the University of Guelph, and he's an infectious disease specialist. And he has these really great handouts on uh, methicillin-resistant staff for, for owners, both MRSP and MRSA. So that's a really good resource. That's what I like for clients the most by far. For primary veterinarians, there are a number of consensus statements that are out there. And I think you can just Google consensus statement on uh, you know staph pseudotomedius infection or pyoderma in dogs, and you'll find a ton of resources. For, for that. Yeah, Dr. Weiss is a friend of the podcast. You're, uh, his Worms and Germs is like not only an incredible source, but I find that it's something you can say to clients and they remember it. Yes, and then, absolutely. You know, that's, that's exactly, I'm sure, why he did that. So uh, yeah, shout out for Worms yep, and Germs. Exactly. <laughs> and they also have a podcast. So, um, you know, uh, always great information there. Always great talking to you. Thank you so much for honestly shedding so much light on this really important topic because sometimes I feel like the more we deal with it, the less confident we feel in our ability to be treating it and be treating it with the best and most current tools that there are out there. And you helped bring them to us today. So thank you again so much for being here with us today. And thank you to our sponsor, Delmount Laboratories, for their help in bringing this episode to you today. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. 
Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.